Hello, everyone, and welcome to another version of uh, Bill Roden on Sports here, broadcasting from Harlem, USA, as usual, and uh, with my co-host, good friend, the great Jamal Murphy. Great to be here, as usual, uh, amongst friends. Yeah. Well, we got a great cast of characters here, really. I mean, I always say that we always have a great cast, but this, this is particularly very special. Um, my guest is... Deborah Riley Draper, writer, director, producer of Olympic Pride, American Prejudice, and Versailles 73, American Runway Revolution. We're going to get back to all that because there's a lot more to, to say about it, but I just want to get the, that out of the way. Um, but the, and then we're here with her husband, Michael A. Draper, who is the executive producer of Olympic Pride, American Prejudice, and Versailles 73. And we're here with Lacey Barnes, who is the line producer Olympic of Olympic Pride, American Prejudice. She's been giving us lessons <laughs> about basically how to get your message out. But that's that's another that's another thing. But uh, I'm really very very excited uh, to talk to uh, to Deborah and, and her husband. Everybody, I just saw the I saw the film, uh, the documentary for the first time. Number one, congratulations. It's, it's Thank you wonderful. so much. We're uh, very proud of that piece of work. It's great. No, that really is, is off the chart. Uh, I saw it. Uh, you showed it at the uh, NAPJ, National Associated Black Journalists Convention, in, uh, in Washington Thursday. It was Thursday. And really, I found myself, and I, again, I've seen a lot of documentaries, been involved with something and all that. Um, this one was particularly moving because uh, what you did is Everybody knows the story. We talk, it, the film concentrates on the 1936 Olympics, but what you did, which I thought was just an exceptional idea, um, you, everybody knows the story of Jesse Owens, but what we did not really know were the stories of his teammates, of his seven, 17, 17, 17 black teammates. other black teammates on that team in 1936. Yeah, what led you to, uh, I mean, again, it's an interesting approach to that. Um, what led you to take that particular uh was it was it was it telling a story that nobody knew about jesse owens or was it not even not even going there just approaching on the merits itself um it was actually on the merits of the 17 other athletes um i think it's really important to have the complete story the complete perspective in uh, 1936 after the great depression as we're putting our country back together 18 African-Americans made the team in 1936 right here um, in New York at Ra Randall's mm. Island. Mm. So when they popped on the SS Manhattan to head to Germany, they were all equal. There were mm. 18 African-American athletes, 16 men, two women who had defied Jim Crow and were about to defy Adolf Hitler. So they are a unique group of athletes. No other set of athletes can make that claim in the history of the world. So that was very fascinating and intriguing to us um, as a filmmaking team. And we wanted to get to know these people and understand why their stories faded into obscurity. Mm. Why, why was, I mean, why, why was that? Again, I mean, let's say me, people may know Ralph Metcalf, but people generally don't know of everybody else yet, Archie Williams. Who was that? Maybe just, just for the record, we should just run down who these people were, who the other people were, obviously it's Jesse Owens, but who are the other people on this team? Everyone's gonna help me out with this one. <laughs> <laughs> Forgot, sure. Forgotten here too. <laughs> no, 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 I wanna make sure that we right. capture all the names because it's critically important. And I'm gonna start with the two women because they're the ones that are least yes. 
remembered, least recognized, and, and least rewarded in terms of their accomplishments. They are the first two black women to ever represent the United States in an Olympics. Tidy Pickett mm. and Louise Stokes, mm. right? right? Do those names ring a bell? Oh, no, you know, the funny thing I told you when I was- No. <laughs> no, 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 I mean, no, that's I knew, the problem. Right? Yeah, exactly, and that's the problem. But what I loved about that, I mean, I knew about Louise Stokes and Tidy Pickett, Mm-hmm. Uh, but I didn't know. But but what you did with them, I think they are great stories. But what you did is that you really dug deep uh, in those two. I mean, you really dug deep. But we'll get back to who they are after you know. But so you're going to name this Louis Stokes, Archie Williams. He gold medal in the 400. Doctor James Louval, mm-hmm. bronze in the 400. Fritz Pollard, mm-hmm. obviously son yes. of the legendary. Coach Fritz Pollard. He was a hurdler. He he took a bronze medal. Cornelius Johnson, gold medal. Dave Albritton, mm. silver medal. Jack Wilson, boxer, silver mm. silver medal. Um, let's see who I'm leaving out. John Brooks, broad jump. And then we had more boxers. We had Howell King. Mm. We had um, who am I leaving out? Willis Johnson. Willis Johnson. Yes. Howell King. Mac Robinson. Mac, Mac Robinson, Robinson. Jackie right, Robinson's brother. Um, James Clark was also a boxer as well. Yeah. John Terry. And the weightlifter, John Terry. Right. I, think, I think that obviously this was the largest contingent of, of black Olympians ever. And, and, and I think in each, succe- each succeeding year, the number was going to grow and grow. In fact, you know the, number, the name I was trying to think of was Alice Coachman. 1948. Yeah, she, she, she became the first. I think in that 48 Olympics, she was the first, only American woman to win a high jumper. But it was because I, I, she also comes out of Tuskegee. Yes. And I think that that's the importance of Stokes and Pickett uh, in terms of women. And let me ask you this. I mean, I'm kind of jumping out of, out of order here. But I'm wondering, because you're a black woman, by the way, she is a black woman. <laughs> I am a black She's woman. a black woman. Uh, but I wonder if, your sensibility as a black woman uh, is kind of what led you to dig deeper on Pickett and Stokes. Because again, those names are kind of mentioned. Some people mention them and go a little bit in detail, but you really, you really went deep in, the, in their stories. And it was a, an important story. Do you think it was your sensibility as a, as a black woman filmmaker that did it or, or just your curiosity? Well, I think it's a combination of both. I think it's a combination of telling the complete story and being accurate and not leaving out two people who are part of a contingency of 18 when they left New York they were all equal none of them had medals okay right. so That's right. through through the trials through the time on the boat through the opening ceremonies all things being equal any one of them could have won more than one medal so but for me it's a gender issue it's a race issue and Louise and Tidy were at the 1932 Olympics yeah. and and they had a terrible experience there being benched even though they were the best sprinters. So to understand their trajectory and to understand the trajectory of black women in sports, you really have to tell their story. And I think it it reminds us of the courage and the contributions of black women in the 30s. It's uh, very rarely do you have the opportunity to see the lives of black women, courageous, athletic, student athletes um, in the right. 30s. That's not, a, that's not a character you see very often in stories. And also, uh, just uh, I think it was a fascinating uh, story of how you got to that. You know, how you, you, know, you, you told the story of, of, uh, of Lady of Snow. But tell, I mean, I think that take us through how you actually got to the not just uh, the story of the whole telling that whole story of the unknowns of the seventeen unknowns. Well, you know, it's interesting because this film was not 
originally where we were gonna be. Um, the research was about Valeda Snow, who's an African-American trumpet player, band leader, you know, jazz star, who was performing in Europe, and uh, much like so many other jazz artists, Hitler didn't like jazz, so she was in Europe at the wrong time, at the wrong place, and she was swept into a concentration camp, and I was astounded that there were African-Americans in concentration camps. Wow. And, uh, it, you know, it, can you believe that? No. Yeah, tell, tell and you never hear, obviously, you never hear that story. So I've never heard that story ever, and I was shocked that. And she wasn't the only one, but she happened to be a famous jazz singer, so there was you know a decent amount of information on her story. So um, what was interesting is when she came back to New York. Uh, she was being interviewed and she remarked that she wished she had left when these guys left after the end of the 1936 Olympics and that's when the light bulb mm. went off and so this phenomenal woman her story led me to the story of these 18 people and then we embarked upon this four-year journey to to make this film and how does she end up there uh, how does she out of the ladies no, I, well, I, I don't want to stick on it but it is fascinating right. how, well, how does she land she, up she, she, she was no different from Josephine Baker and tons of other uh, jazz musicians who went to Europe because there was an opportunity to perform because the audiences you know welcomed them so for a long time in Berlin jazz was welcomed and it was accepted and then when Chancellor Hitler came into power mm. he deemed jazz degenerate music mm. because Jewish musicians and black singers, you know, were in these clubs and, and the kids were falling in love with what he considered to be monkey music. Mm, right. And so uh, in order to kind of make sure he could push his agenda, those clubs had to be closed and anyone pushing that needed to be detained. And when he was sweeping the clubs and, and detaining everyone, she happened to be in one that day, wrong place, wrong time, and two years later, she was released from a camp. Did you, do you know the numbers of blacks that were in concentration camps? Did you come across that? I don't know the numbers of them, but one of them actually became an editor at Ebony Magazine. Um, yes. Wow. Hans? Yes. Oh, Hans Masakoy. Exactly. Because uh, you know what, Hans, I worked at Ebony, I worked at Ebony for yes. four years. Yes. And Hans from 1974-78, and Hans was one of my editors. Exactly. Uh, who was, you know, you know his, his whole story. He was, he grew up in Germany. His father, his mother was German. I think his father was African. That's right. He's always kidding. They, they had, I heard some of the great signifying things at Ebony Magazine, just about people's mothers and all that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's another. It makes but, sense. Yeah, but how, but, oh, that's, yeah, yeah. You remember? How, of course, yes, yes. yes that. So those are the two that I'm most familiar with. There were others, but those two I'm most familiar with. Oh, wow, yeah, no, uh, great Hans Masakoy. That's right. Um, Damn, I, you know, I had another question. There was Hans. That's just completely <laughs> blue, blue. Oh, what I want the, the, the title because I think that's very important. How did you come up uh, with the title um, Olympic Pride American Prejudice? Um, how did you? Why? Why is that significant? Well, it, it's at Pride and Prejudice is actually Lacey, one of Lacey's favorite books. <laughs> but um, the 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 irony and the paradox of the story is reflected in that title. Because the irony and the paradox of, of that title um, is reflected in the story of these characters. You know, when you're on the metal stand, there's great pride, right? Mm -hmm. The minute you step off, there's tremendous prejudice. Because for 10.4 seconds, everyone's cheering for you and they love you. You are doing exactly what we want you to do. But if you come off that stand or if you come off that track and you ask to be a full citizen or if you want the rights, Right. It's not going to happen. That implicit bias kicks in, and there will be prejudice. Like today. Like, hmm. like today. Yeah, and, and, and you, you mentioned 
what happened when they came back, you know, uh, and it is so, so humbling, you know, uh, if you look at what happened when they came back to the United States, um, no matter how great they were there, they came back and they were being, you know, I guess, I guess they were being used, they were being used, they've been used by everybody. Everybody was being used, <laughs> right? Well, well, that was a period of time where propaganda was incredible on both sides of the Atlantic. Everyone had an agenda. Everyone had a plan. Everyone needed to profit from something. So, and think about it. Before these athletes were even on the team, there was this huge boycott. Should we go? Should we not go? The NAACP had one perspective. The black newspapers had the other perspective. So it was really critically important that uh, these athletes be there for themselves, not just for all of the entities who, who had a stake in the game. Mm -hmm. uh, we, well, I was going to get to Michael. Michael just left. Um, <laughs> but but Lacey, uh, she had mentioned, what was, tell us a little bit about your role in, in this production and um, you know, sort of what your you, you, like I said, you were giving us this big, this big uh, lesson about PR and that kind of stuff. What was your role in the movie? How long have you guys known each other, by the way? Oh, well, we kind of debate on exactly how long we've known each other. Um, I say longer, but she says a couple of years, maybe not so long. But we date back to the 1980s, late 1980s. The 90s. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. What did you do on this particular film? What on, was your... on this particular film, my role was line producer, and people always ask me, what's a line producer? Yeah, right. What's a line producer? What is a line producer? Um, my background is in event planning, so to me, it's more of an event planner for a film. Um, what you do is you keep track of the budget, um, you make plans, you help to help the producer, actually assist the director with making the film hiring crew, casting crew, looking, researching the cast, finding family members, um, delegating some of those tasks to the production manager and production coordinator, and basically anything that needs to be done to help get the film finished. Hmm. My, Michael, one of the things when, when, um, uh, when, when Deborah was talking in, in DC, one of the things that's fascinating about the film is the footage and the people that you were able to track down. And so someone asked in the crowd, well, how did you track all these people down? And then she went, oh, well, that was my husband, Michael Draper. And I said, oh, really? That's what, tell her how, I mean, what, what you did, how, how that was your role and how you tracked <laughs> Okay, yeah. oh yeah. Well, I've been a federal agent for about mm, almost 26 years. Wow. So I, I conducted quite a few uh, investigations. And before then, I was a police officer also. And uh, what we did- Where, Whereabouts, where? Well, I was with St. Louis County PD in St. Mm. Louis, Missouri. Mm. Uh, I came on with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and Explosives mm. in Fresno, California. And I came back to St. Louis, Washington, D.C., in headquarters in uh, Virginia and so forth. So I traveled quite a bit. Uh, but one thing that uh, we uh, observed when we was uh, checking, looking into these guys and everything, of course they didn't keep much, much information on African Americans. So we uh, checked into those individuals who they was associated with. Mm -hmm. And those individuals who was associated with them, we did more um, research on those individuals and just brought us back around to the uh, other athletes. And that's how we was able to uh, gather a lot of information. Who are the hardest people to find? I mean, you, you, you found, you, tr you were dragging a lot of people out to the, who, <laughs> like how the hell did they get that person? The, the, the boxers. The boxers, yeah. the boxers were the hardest people yeah. to find. Willis mm -hmm. Johnson mm -hmm. um, yeah. was, was probably the hardest uh, one to find. Um, 
and, and I think everyone loved the track and field athletes and, and the boxers. I think the German, the German uh, scholar in our film put it best. You know, the people cheered when, when black guys got hit, right. but, but, but uh, they applauded the track and field stars when they ran because they were tall and good looking. So uh, people tended to remember them more fondly. And so a lot of articles were written about those guys and less articles written about the black boxers. And I, I noticed with a couple of the boxers, I think that their, their dates of death were unknown. Willis Johnson, Howell King, if anyone out there is from Detroit, Michigan, and they can tell us <laughs> who these gentlemen are, please go to our website and right. let us know. We don't know. Um, and and Lacey and, and Tandy and Mike, they looked everywhere they could possibly think of to find these guys in it. And it, and it speaks to African-American record keeping in the 30s and 40s and the 50s. You know, we weren't valued in that way so that being able to go to the Census Bureau and determine right. what happened to somebody was not as effective as for someone Actually, else. Actually, Willis is right here at the church. <laughs> 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 that big tower. He's 102. He comes speak to our uh, kids sometimes on Saturday. And, they, and these, were, these were Olympians right. that, we, that we have no record of. So imagine the average Joe. Well, here's a funny thing, Jamal. Um, in a lot of the pictures, Every single picture was named Jesse Owens. So, <laughs> so regardless of which athlete it was, yeah, Jesse Owens. the yeah. caption was Jesse Owens. And we were like, that's Mac Robinson. <laughs> that's so funny. Are you sure, are you sure they, don't, they don't look alike? Right, yeah. right. And they don't look alike. Well, no. Jimmy LuBao and Jesse Owens look nothing alike. Right, right, right. That's what you like, say. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I said. And I didn't know about, you know, like I said, uh, I went to school with um, John Woodruff. Whose dad was uh, John Woodruff, was, uh, John Woodruff. <laughs> and it, but it wasn't until then. This was like maybe 1971 or two when we're talking. He said, "My dad, my dad." And then I'm like starting to dig into this. Wait a minute, man! Your dad, this guy was tremendous. And then I was working on a documentary. Um, uh, what, uh, what is it called for HBO? Um, oh, the journey of the African American athlete. And I saw for the first time the race he won. And here in the 800 talk, meters, the 800 meters. And a the guy was. You know, a good-looking guy, well-spoken, as they say, and it gets back to your wanting to get back to these untold stories. But these are these are all great people with lives, with 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 feelings, with emotions, who had ups and downs, and and it's so funny how history treats black people in particular that that they don't tell it. We don't get married, we don't die, we don't have kids, we don't have birthdays. We're just these these. Objects, and that is what I think was so beautiful about and powerful about your film is that you really brought this stuff home. That these are people, yeah, everybody knows Jesse Owens, right? But these other people had ambitions and they had hopes and dreams. And we we always joke, you know, Jesse was in the relay, so he didn't run all four positions. So Jesse Owens handed up Jesse Owens and Jesse Owens simultaneously. And he's also German. He's beating himself. We we try to, you know, Ralph Metcalf was the person he handed the baton off to. That's right. right. And didn't and and I forget who it was, but. Uh, it was the hundred or two hundred. Who came? Who got the silver? Mm. Mac Robinson. Exactly. Right. Mm. Jesse. I mean, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, just by Jesse like a won point, point 
one second or something like that. Well, and that was the race with Ralph Metcalf. Ralph came in second on one right. race. Mac Robinson came in second on the other race. These guys were world class sprinters. Right. You know, the interesting <laughs> story too is Eulis Peacock. I mean, he's not in in this Olympics. Um, he could have been if you if you watch the film, you see him pull that muscle at Randall's right. Island. Right. And right. That, you know, that was another fascinating because I I had actually done a couple pieces on Eulis Peacock, mm -hmm. uh, but I'd never seen. The, the part where he actually pulled up because he had actually smoked Jesse Owens many times. Yeah, he had beaten and beaten. In fact, he and then he pulled up and he just talk about something that how history would have just completely yeah. been changed had this guy not pulled. But you know what? That's why they play the game any given Sunday. But also, I was also thinking as far as Jesse Owens goes. I mean, he, he had four gold medals. If if someone else beats him and he ends up with one or two, does he is he that same figure? And they still probably forget about, or maybe they forget about everybody. Like say, you know, each one got one gold. Do we hear about any of them or any of them glorified? You know, that's a fascinating question. You're actually the first person to actually mention that, Jamal. It's, a, it's an interesting theory if they would have all faded into obscurity. Mm. But we know that it was really important, um, propaganda-wise, to use Jesse as this mythical figure, as this super um, athlete and and it was part of that one theory, right? right. There's one incredible black athlete, and he was able to defy Hitler. And if that one Negro can beat the super Germans, then when we go to war, we certainly will be able to beat them. And it was very rah-rah, and it's very patriotic. But think about this. No one wanted to hear the story of 18 incredible African-Americans right. attending school at Berkeley, Marquette, right. Ohio State, Jimmy Lavelle 4.0 at UCLA majoring in chemistry. No one, that story, they couldn't digest because that. It was too it, much. It doesn't right. go through the narrative. Right. In other words, you, you're absolutely right. You take the one, mm -hmm. and they always try to make the, uh, the one the exception. Like, that's the exception to the rule. Yeah. But you had, you had all these guys. I mean, you had Lavelle. Uh, uh, Metcalf becomes. <laughs> yeah, you had Metcalf becomes a congressperson. Um, who else is Lavelle who becomes a. Um, Archie becomes a Tuskegee Airman. Laval gets a PhD. Dave Alberton's the state senator. Mm. And you, Tidy Pickett has an elementary school named after her. Louise Stokes starts a bowling alley for black women, wins championships in bowling for 30 years. Incredible people. And, and you have to think that we know Jackie Robinson, but you have to think that in his house, when Matt came home with that silver medal, that empowered oh, Jackie yeah. oh, to be absolutely. able to do things 10 years later. Yeah, how could it not? Yeah, and, and you talk to, um, who did I talk to, the, the, the sprinter who came, uh, I'm getting the blank, but Jesse Owens was his, um, was his role model. Um, maybe I'll think of later. Carlos? No, 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 Har no, no. Harrison. Harrison Dillard. Yep. Har Harrison Bones Dillard. Yep. And he talked about, because remember, and it's funny, back in those days of the newsreel, black folks were left out of those newsreels, mm -hmm. except when you saw in the 1936 Olympics, all these black guys doing this great thing, and they said for, 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 for me, a little kid growing up in Cleveland, and seeing those black folks accomplish that. You know, he said he remembers the, the parade when Jesse Owens came back to Cleveland, and how he went home saying, I wanna be Jesse Owens, and just imagine for a lot of our parents, my dad passed away when he was 94, a few years ago, but his guy was Jesse Owens, his guy was Joe Lewis, mm -hmm. and if you think of growing up then when you had absolutely no role models who were who were nationally known and to see these people that that olympic team coming back from 36 having just smoked white people not just germans you know we said no they just smoke white people <laughs> you know um let me my guest is deborah riley draper 
the writer, director, producer of Olympic Pride, American Prejudice. Um, here with her husband, Michael E. Draper, Lacey Banks, who's the live producer. Lacey Barnes. Lacey, what did I say? Oh, Lacey, Lacey Banks. <laughs> Just to let you know that I didn't, Lacey Banks was one of my mentors. He was a great sports writer. Uh, he, he preceded me at Ebony, the Chicago Sun-Times. He was sort of legendary. So I'll, I'll take that. Yeah, but but <laughs> thank, thank you for being, but, but it's Lacey Barnes. Not Lacey, oh, Lacey let's go Banks. to Banks. I like that better now. <laughs> <laughs> it's her new pseudonym. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And Jamal Murphy, we're going to be back. And when I come back, uh, I've made a note that, uh, that you, are the, you are the master of telling the untold stories. And so when we come back, we're going to talk about that and a little bit about the Versailles 73 American Runaway Revolution because it's very fascinating. I keep asking, how is she coming up with this stuff? This is really, but when we come back, we'll talk about that and more with Deborah Riley Draper, the great Deborah Riley Draper. I like it when you say it like that. Oh, no. There's, well, I'll tell you what I say. Okay, we'll be right back. <laughs> Producer of Olympic Pride, American Prejudice, and her husband Michael A. Draper, who's the executive producer, and with Lacey Barnes. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I mentioned before before the. Um, oh, by the way, when I said the great, there, there was a guy at Ebony Magazine named uh, Charles Sanders, and he would always say, not to everybody, but that's the first thing somebody. The great Bill Roden, and he was, but uh, so. I started even at the Times when I was there. Were just a, not everybody, just a few people. I say the great Joe, and we got a thing. Was it the great Bill Roden and the great? <laughs> but there is an element of truth. I, know, I just don't say that to everybody, you know. But um, before I, you know, but before the break, I said that um, I, I called you. I've made a note to myself that you are the master of telling the untold stories. This is one of the 1936 team, but also you did this film. Uh, Versailles 73 American Runway Revolution and when I mentioned that to my wife she said oh my she did that oh that was great tell people about that because I know it, it, people say it's kind of like a cult underground film but tell us what that was about how that came to be because again you got to kind of kind of search you got to go with somebody somebody says you got to go deep in the hood <laughs> to find this one <laughs> you, you, it, it is, and it's another tale of going down the rabbit hole so I was going to do this documentary on Donia Luna. I was, mm. you know, she's from Detroit. She went to Cas Tech. She was the first black model to be on a major publication. And um, that that's what I was going to do. And she had a roommate when she lived in Paris. Of course, she's a black woman. Her roommate was Pat Cleveland mm. and uh, supermodel Pat Cleveland. Mm. And somehow I discovered in listening to NPR, Barbara Summers talking about Pat Cleveland and the other black models who changed the runway in 1973 mm -hmm. at the Chateau de Versailles. And I was like, what? New York, Paris, the Chateau de Versailles, beautiful black models, Halston, Andy Warhol, Christina Onassis, what kind of story is mm. this? And uh, 
that's how I decided Versailles 73 American Runway Revolution would be a story I wanted to tell. At that moment, it was a 40-year-old story, and it was actually about the birth of American ready-to-wear, but what people didn't realize was that the birth of American ready-to-wear was actually ignited by black folks. Mm. <laughs> you know, Stephen Burroughs, they may see the name, but they don't realize that he's an African-American designer from the 70s that was on the stage with Halston, Bill Blass, Anne Klein, Oscar De La Renta, and he was a part of those five American designers who took on the French mm. and uh, you know, basically dismantled their uh, role and their reign as the best designers in the world. So they, they, they were a ragtag bunch, you know, and they were competing against the French who had very deep pockets and they did not have as much money. And so by the time they got their team together, by the time they got their productions together, they had Liza Minnelli with them to perform. They ran out of money for models and Eleanor Lambert, who is the publicist for this group said, well, let's get the black girls, they're cheap. Mm -hmm. And we can get, you know, and they were able to get 12 black girls for the price of one white model. Mm -hmm. So they took these black girls over to Paris with them and everything went wrong, everything went haywire. And when it was time for them to perform, all that was left was Stephen Burroughs, Barry White, and uh, Al Green music, and that's what the Americans modeled their clothes to, and the black girls basically brought in Vogue. Mm. And, and that's how the walk, as we know it, on the runway was born. And that's what this story's about. And it's incredible. The tickets to this event were 250 bucks a piece in 1973. All the dukes and duchesses, all the people who bought the haute couture were there, and they were exposed to these black models. And that next year, that's when Givenchy had a cabine of all black girls in Paris because he was so impressed with what he had seen that night. Oh, wow. That's a great story. How can people find it? If they wanted to find and in, in addition and to this one, how can, how can people get that? Um, they, how, uh, can, Versailles, how can I get it? <laughs> Versailles 73, it's on iTunes, it's on Hulu, it's on Amazon. They can, they can get it in that way. And it's interesting because you probably know one of the models from that legendary fashion show, Beth Ann Hardison, the mother of Kadeem Hardison. Oh, wow. She was one of the 12 black women in 1973 that changed the face of, uh, there you go, you have your own personal <laughs> copy. Thank you very much. You <laughs> just made my day. Bye. <laughs> you pass that on to your wife. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Oh, another brownie point. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah but I, no, I'm about to go on a tangent, but I want <laughs> this. You know, but this is you know this is so important. I remember when I gave my nephew a galley copy of Forty Million Dollar Slaves, and he was only twelve, thirteen at the time. He came back and said, "Uncle Bill, why don't I know this?" And he said it with this kind of anger because you're thinking you're in school and all that, and it's like. You're, you're a young black kid, and somebody gives you this whole tomb of information, and you're like, wait a where is this? Why don't I know this? And it's the same thing, I'm listening to this stuff, about how this basically transformed the industry, and nobody knows these people. Right, and if you think about it, people think of Beth Ann Hardison as an advocate for black models now. That's because she didn't have an advocate when she was in France, November 28th, 1973. So she grew into that role because she had an experience that ticked, you know, checked a box for her to do something so the next generations of black models won't have to deal with the same things she did. So these women are legendary. Alva Chin, Norma Jean Darden, she owns Spoonbread. Oh, wait a minute, she's one of my wife's best friends. Well, she was there November 28th, 1973 in France modeling these clothes for Oscar de la Renta, Stephen Burroughs, Anne oh, Klein, man, this is Halston, 
Norma Jean was a model when when she <laughs> that's right after she graduated with her degree in theater she modeled for that's a couple years before she wrote the book before she did the one woman show she was and, at and Versailles now she got the great restaurant Spoon Bread huh? and and for a lot of people that's what they know they know yes. Spoon Bread Harlem but you walk in and you see this woman and she's serving you these this great you have no idea that this woman was this woman She's she's on the back cover of that. If you take a look, you'll see Norma Jean, you know, sashaying down the runway in Paris. Which one is she? Well, I mean, I know I'll, this, I'll is show ra- this is radio. This is radio. She's here. Look, hey, see? can you see her? Yeah. <laughs> she's the one with the bun. Uh, yes, uh, but is, yes, but she spent a number of years in Paris modeling. Hmm. So after this moment, you know, and, and if you know Norma Jean, mm-hmm. um, she's a quiet, elegant woman. Yes, right. Mm-hmm. But she was repped by Ford. Really? Wow. But you know, again, you know, that, and, and not to. And I'll give you, you one more. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charlene Dash was one of those women as well. Her sister is Julie Dash. Oh, she wow. did Daughters of the Dust. Wow, yes. Wow. Man, this is, you know, th- these things. We just have to keep showing this. One of the things that, that came to mind, again, when we were watching your film, or the latest film, um, Olympic Pride, American Prejudice in Washington, was, again, when you start getting emotional about this, again, it gets back to the power of this. And every time I see these films, no matter how much I've seen them, it just fills you with this power because you realize that no matter what I'm going through in 2016, no matter, it's like gravy gravy when you go back each generation and you say man what I'm going through now but the only reason I'm able to do this is because of what they did and and I think that our kids and I think we were talking about this over lunch um, at uh, La Libertad which is over yeah, we, had, we had a whole podcast at lunch yeah we, had yeah, we did podcast. Jamal <laughs> it was, it was <laughs> the, the great debate right, right. <laughs> Russell Wilson remember we don't we'll let us back to that. don't <laughs> let us don't let us in don't let us end this podcast without talking about Russell Wilson, oh, we're coming back Carmelo to it Anthony, because right. it is linked to Jesse Owens. In other words, there is a tradition. It's of, connective tissue. It's all connected. We'll get to in the third segment. But, but, um, but I guess what I'm saying is that this is so powerful, and I think a lot of times our kids don't understand. Like I told the, the story of the kid, uh, the young lady who asked me, uh, you know, at the end of a black history talk, she said, well, Mr. Roden, who was the first white player to integrate the NBA? And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, but it, it just occurred to me at that point that for a lot of our kids, they grew up thinking that the NBA was always 80% black, that right. the NFL was always 79% black. We were always dominant in the Olympics. And if that's how you think, then you have no sense of struggle. That is, is now it's up to your generation to make sure it's kind of like that. And I wonder how much of that sense of mission um, informed either when you first started doing Versailles 73 or when you start doing Olympic Pride American Prejudice how much of that sense of mission informed what you were doing did did uh, your experiences with Versailles 73 uh, inform you you know what you how you were going to approach Olympic Pride I mean or you just a sister who's got you know filled with the spirit of you know Harriet Tubman and Malcolm well she kids she's not going to deny that you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's, 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 Jamal, Jamal, that's right. What kind of question is that? <laughs> Thank you, Jamal. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Thank yeah. you very much. <laughs> Actually, uh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you know what it what it is? It's it's actually the pursuit of demonstration of excellence. Mm-hmm. 
And it's the pursuit of being able to remind ourselves that we are so incredible and that we have this incredible um, cultural inheritance. And a young man in Wilmington, North Carolina, gave me the term cultural inheritance. I was showing a work in progress um, at Wilmington. We were at the Kukularis Film Festival, and they said, Deborah, will you go to a halfway house and show your film mm-hmm. and talk to these uh, men? And so I screened the film, and this young man who had been in prison for murder mm-hmm. um, watched Olympic Pride and American Prejudice, and he was almost in tears. Mm-hmm. And he said he didn't know anything about his history Mm. other than Martin Luther King. Mm. And he was so excited and thrilled to have the opportunity to be given cultural inheritance Mm. that he deserved. And he appreciated me giving it to him. And I realized that, wow, we have a responsibility to give to the next generation the proper cultural inheritance so that they can be empowered and inspired, but also not suffer from the the whole thing of not being good enough yes, or feeling right. less than or feeling like I'm three-fourths of a man, mm. that they mm. can be whole and they can pursue the things that they want to pursue in the way that they want to pursue it and not feel like, ooh, I'm always going to be less than so mm-hmm. that that's what these stories help you understand not only are you not less than you actually the ones Better who than. did it <laughs> right well like the, like you were saying in versailles yeah i mean you actually did it i mean yeah these black women actually they did, it. did it right on they were the ones who walked that stage with those clothes spinning in halston spinning in bill blast they gave those designers the, they brought life to the clothes in a way that it would not have happened for these designers if those girls were not in the clothes at that moment. You know, but yeah, that's the thing too. The American illusion is such a strong, um, almost core of who we are as a country, this illusion. And basically black people represent a profound truth. That's why I think we represent such a nightmare to them because every time you see a black person, light skin, red, yellow, black, we represent the ultimate contradiction to this whole illusion of the America. You cannot create a democracy on the backs of 40 million slaves. And everything, everything time you watch this stuff, you're like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? But it's, you know, what the, uh, an honest white person would say, listen, we got to kill you guys because that's, we, we <laughs> exactly. have to demonize you. We have to say you're an animal because that's the only way we can explain away our bullshit. Right. You know, and, but, but it's up to us and you and filmmakers, writers, right, to constantly crash against it. Which leads me to my next question, which is, I know this kind of always upsets the liberal folks. Who tells our story? I think it's so important to, for black folks to tell our own stories. And, you know, a lot of people push back, particularly white people, because they've, they've made so much money telling our stories. It's like a billion dollar industry. So well, what do you mean? Anybody could tell any, you know, that kind of, but really I think in watching your film, hearing you talk about this, seeing other documentaries, and you, and you see black folks do it, and again, that's saying we're a monolith. I mean, we all, approach, but it's still a black culture, but what are you, what, what's your um, uh, take on that about who should tell our story, or why, why it's important for black folks to tell black stories? You know, I, I don't think, um, I wanna say, only black people should tell black stories. I want to say this. Mm. I want to say black people deserve the right to tell their stories. And I feel that we are better 
um, empowered to tell our own stories, and we should have a platform to tell our stories. If other people want to tell our stories, that's great too. Right. But we shouldn't be shut out of the process well, of that's, that's, telling that's the, our yeah. story. And, and, we, and we should be able to tell other stories and too. We, that's that was my next as, sentence, as, Jamal. Right. As it, white people, it are should be to. democratized where the best storytellers should have the opportunities to tell the stories that they want. If I'm if I'm a great storyteller, a writer, and a director. I should choose a story that's passionate, one that I believe in and one that I want to tell regardless of who the characters are. Now, for me, it's highly likely that my characters will be African-American and they, and they will stories will impact and show African-American women in different light. I'm drawn to stories that put us in a position that people haven't seen before, so maybe that's you know the untold part but we're not one dimensional so I, I don't want to keep seeing the same story over and right. over I want to find those stories that you're like oh my god I didn't know because guess what we don't know and we right. need to find out and we need to be able to show just how much not only that we contributed you know the good the bad the ugly all of what we do has to be elevated so that people can understand us so that we can not have to always fight for position not have to fight for recognition and inclusion. Hey, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine, a uh, photographer, um, who, you know, won a couple of Pulitzer Prize. And what he was saying is that, you know, the, the idea, I think you got to it, when he, like a white guy did this book of photography of all these black women. And he was saying that every project he tried to do is just, not that black people can't do, it's so hard. The process is just so difficult where you may have your white counterpart. It ain't, it's all hard, but some, it ain't that hard. In other words, it just seems like he was making the point that when we're trying to do these projects, it's just so hard to get it to get it done. Not that you can't get it done. It's just so difficult. That's not, true. <laughs> it's very true. And I don't know if that's what you meant when you, yeah, we should all be free to tell as many stories as we want, but it just seems to be so difficult. We, we, we interviewed Ken Burns right. about, you know, and, and, and Ken has done all the stuff. And I'm, at some point, I forget what the, what the question was, but I said, well, man, I, I forgot what it was, but it was beginning to call him on stuff. And not, not just calling him, because it's, he did some great work and all that, but I said, man, you know, the access that you got is just unbelievable. So, and you have no idea of what being white, of how that just puts you on third base, as opposed to mm -hmm. we're in the batter's box. I always say, mm -hmm. somebody asks me, you know, when you go to the New York Times, for example, and just to pick, the way white and black people are judged differently. The white kids you're competing are judged like figure skaters. Well, you start with a perfect score, and as you fuck up, you lose points. Black people are judged like basketball. Well, you come in, you start with no points, and then you got a <laughs> score point. So if you screw up enough, and I make enough points, maybe we'll meet in the middle, right. but that's hard. Right. Well, and I say it's hard because, so um, Mike and Lacey and I, trying to find out about Avery Brundage. In a situation like Ken Burns, he gets to deploy you know, his researchers to University of Champaign, Urbana. The three of us have to fly to Chicago, rent a van from Hertz, right. drive to the University of Ch and literally go through the boxes with the gloves ourselves. So th that that access, you know, we, we have the same access, but we don't have the resources to, to deploy all of the people. We literally have to do it ourselves. But the beauty of actually doing it yourself, mm -hmm. 
means you know your story and you become right. that much more involved in it. And you hopefully, when you see the film, you can see the passion of our work. We did it ourselves. Mm. We bootstrapped it. We, we found the photos, we found the footage, we went to Germany, we, we spoke with the Germans. We did everything we could to tell the right story because it meant something to us because we're African-American. Right. But it's also the, the execution of ideas. You have an idea, whereas a Ken Burns or someone else has an idea, another, another white person in power will say, oh, you know, that, that's a good idea. But, it, but if you come with the idea, that same person is less They're going to take the idea and give it to Kim Burns. Oh, yeah, right. exactly. Right. Or, and a black person might or do it just too. won't get it. We'll say, oh, you know, some black woman, you know. Right. And, I don't, and, I don't and, get it. And again, this is, this is not to denigrate Ken Burns, who was on our show. We want to buy it. But it's not to denigrate anybody. But it, and I think any, any white person who understands right. white supremacy and racism, they understand this. They understand. And Ken Burns will tell you he understands this. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks he, to he's us. He's very well funded. Yeah, he's well funded. And I think that. Again, we will accomplish things. We, you know, as black folks, I mean, clearly, if you look at 400 years, we will. It's just harder, yeah. and, it's, and they make it harder. And particularly, I think the deeper you get into the black thing, whatever that is, it becomes a little harder because again, white people, this is this, this illusion thing is really, really deep about whiteness being given this sort of in, inherent thing you get for being white. I think that's what people like Donald Trump tap into, right. although they know it's a lie. And I think when white people come, when they close the factory and they lay off everybody, and I go, wait a minute, I thought that being white, son, that was never the truth. <laughs> anyway, but, but listen, um, we want to take one more break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about um, uh, Russell Wilson. We're going to talk about Jesse Owens. We're going to talk about black athletes and empowerment. We're going to talk, we're going to, we, you know. Right. The past and present. The past, the pre we're going to talk a lot in this last segment. <laughs> Hopefully we can recapture what we uh, wrote. But anyway, my guest is Deborah Riley Draper, the writer, director, producer of really a fantastic, a fantastic documentary. Thank you, Bill. No, no, it really is. I'm telling you, it was really very powerful, really powerful and uh and, and what we said at each screening is that you got to bring your children out to see this. I don't know what age would be the nice minimum age where, you know, kids would kind of not run out to the theater. Yeah, I thought about bringing my two-year-old, but then I decided against it. Well, well Kareem might get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have an enlightened two-year-old. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, her husband, Michael, Michael Draper, the executive producer, and Lacey Barnes, who is the live producer, we're going to explain that a little more because that's very uh, important. Uh, as, as I said here, at the we have a lot of movies come here. And it's very interesting. I know this is a long break. <laughs> but what I find is fascinating is many movies we have here, there's like all these white crews. They're all these, I mean, it's, mm -hmm. if you're talking about all these white crews, and when there's a black person that may be stopping traffic or, you know, or serving <laughs> the coffee or something like that, but rarely, but there's all these white crews. And so, and then I was talking to one, you know, lady, how do you, well, my dad was a so-and-so and so-and-so, you know, and I was trying to tell um, our people here that as a part of the contract, they need to spend like maybe a Saturday or something taking some of our kids here and giving them a tour. Like, this is how you become this. These are all the, the, the set design and all the stuff. So they're saying like in sports, I was telling these guys, one, one day, why don't you take a trip through, through the front office of your particular team? Number one, you'll be stunned at how many non-black people are at these places. And how, I bet you don't even know all the positions, the, the secretaries, the this, the that, the that, anyway. 
Uh, we'll be back. We'll talk about that and more in just a couple of minutes with uh, the wonderful Deborah Riley Draper, uh, writer, director, producer. We'll be right back. <laughs> We're back with a passion. I'm, I'm just so pissed off. No, not, <laughs> I should, no, I, I, no not, not really. You can't get angry about this stuff. No, it's, you can't get angry. I think, Bill, what you do is we figure out ways to bring our stories to light. Right. That, that's, that's my way of getting angry. My way of getting angry is showing there are 18 phenomenal black folks who the thought was they would fade into obscurity, but we're shining the light on That's that right. so that they will never fade into obscurity. Right. If you want to get people, I'll tell you, if you want to make people pissed off, succeed. Right. Exactly. Just succeed. That's all you've got to do is succeed. Because somewhere there's sitting, somebody sitting there that's angry because our whole thing is how you can't do it. Um, let, let, me, let me ask you this, Deborah, here with um, our guest, Deborah Riley Draper, the writer, director, producer of Olympic Pride, American Prejudice. You, we're getting into Versailles 73. At the time you made that, that was your first documentary. Just tell us what you were doing at that time and how you left what you were doing to get into making being a documentary, being a filmmaker. Well, I, at the time, I was the vice president um, at BBDO, which is an advertising agency, which I didn't leave because I'm a black person. I had to keep my day job <laughs> and making a film. Yeah. So, um, but spending all that time in the, in the world of advertising for, for, you know, well over at that point, 10 years, mm. um, I was you know, creating commercials, 30-second mm. commercials, telling stories for brands. Um, and I realized that I wanted to do something in storytelling, but not for the brands. I wanted to do it with something that was important to me and, pa and something I was passionate about. And when I discovered that we can actually dig into the archives at the National Archives and Records mm. and find out about all these incredible African Americans who are just buried on microfiche. Um, I, I wanted to use my power as a storyteller for that particular purpose, for entertainment and inspiration. And because I actually love seeing movies with black folks. Mm. I loved Mahogany. Mm. I loved Lady Sings the Blues. I loved Claudine. I loved all of these movies. You know, Love Jones, everything. Mm that I could see myself in, it was important to me and it helped me establish self-esteem and self-confidence and I wanted to make sure that the next generation of kids had a canon of film that they can watch and feel the exact same way. You know, in, in talking to you uh, when we were uh, at the restaurant and you were mentioning, we were talking about promotion because that's, you know, as we were saying, Jamal, I was saying one of the, one of the challenges we found even in doing this podcast is how do you get, you know, up to 50,000 people. And it's, it's hard. It's, it's marketing. And yeah. you got you to market it. And uh, I was thinking that maybe because you come out of advertising, maybe you were in the mentality already of the importance of, of marketing. So maybe that helped, you know, as you began getting into filmmaking, you already knew the importance of marketing. Well, for, for us, it was the importance of marketing partnerships. Mm and partnering with other brands or other people who had reach, who had frequency, who had access, who had resources, so that our ability to, to um, amplify our message was greater, 10 times, 20 times greater by having a partner. Um, and, and for us, we knew as an independent, small production company in Atlanta, 
we needed brand partners and, and we are very fortunate in, in this particular um, case to have people at Comcast and people at Procter & Gamble who saw this film and were interested in this film and wanted to support us. And another executive producer by the name of uh, Dr. Amy Tiemann who saw value in this. So these partnerships and we marketed marketed this film as a work in progress so that we can get people to see it before we were even finished so mm -hmm. that they would come on board mm -hmm. and so that they would like what they saw and support it because we knew we couldn't get this made without partners and that's the business side of it when you're it's show and business it's show business so you yeah yeah you know, you know you, the show part is easy that's creative content but the business part is finding an outlet who are we going to use to be able to help us in ABJ, being able to talk to the legendary Bill Roden about this film, you have an audience that we don't have. Mm -hmm. So being able to connect with you exposes us to your audience. So we're able to tell them they can go to www.1936olympicsmovie.com to find out more about this film. Telling the folks at NABJ. So it's about critically and strategically thinking how Will I connect? What type of outreach do I need to create in order to give this film a life, the life that it deserves, and give these characters a life that it deserves? So that's way less filmmaking and more strategic marketing communications planning. Mm. What, what um, did you learn from uh, Versailles, doing Versailles, that helped you in your approach to, uh, to, the, uh, Olympic, you know, to the Olympic pride? Um, I think the biggest thing is making sure that, that those partnerships are there and they're solid and they understand what you need and what your objectives are and making sure that, that, that people aren't running away with the project with their own objectives. That's what I learned mm. Um, mm. the most. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm gonna forget somebody's name, but I noticed, uh, let's see, a couple of years ago, I was on a panel with Lorenz Grant, uh, who did uh, Jesse Owens. I was just on a panel, uh, or the, or, and I, why, why am I blanking her name? She just did the NFL documentary um, on uh, NFL, um, uh, uh, what's the sister's name? She, we're gonna have to edit this in or something. But, um, <laughs> oh man, but she's a film. I know, uh, uh, I, but I was talking about all these, these, these women filmmakers, black women filmmakers who were really rising. I don't, and, and I was thinking that, I don't know if, if this is like a movement or if I just, wasn't aware, or if you sense that there's sort of a new vanguard coming. And also, I noticed too that, particularly with my friend, and I'm gonna know by the time you finish your answer, I will give her her proper credit, that I wonder if there's a, 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 another sensitivity, a sensibility that maybe black women may bring to filmmaking, particularly to these masculine kind of sports stories that maybe is missing. You know, I think there's a level of empathy and sympathy and sensibility that comes with female storytellers. And I think there's also an attention to detail. Um, that Excuse <laughs> us. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, and there's a, a, an ability to balance a lot of things at one time, to be able to look at the marketing while you still have your eye in the edit room, to be able to find these characters and find those endearing qualities about them. And, and there's that maternal instinct that mm. allows you to deliver that story um, to full term and, and birth that story in a tender way that will allow that story to flourish. And I, and I think those are some of the virtues and qualities that, that women bring to filmmaking. And I think black women bring another level of care and concern and another level of understanding about what 
these characters really went through, not just the superficial sports and the running, but the human part of them and the spiritual part of them as people. So I think that's what you get, and that's what you're seeing in the work of a lot of women. And I think there is a new vanguard. I think the the democratization with digital cameras, the reds, the epics, mm. the dragon, that allows more storytellers to tell more stories, um, and it's not so dependent on people to give you the green light because you can tell beautiful stories with an iPad. <laughs> How much is that? Um, I'm actually doing the Ollie shuffle because I'm trying to figure out the thing. Um, well, one thing you, you also talked about, and I didn't want to leave this point because it's important. Um, when you're talking about the uh, using black folks in this in, in the filmmaking process, and you were saying even you were noticing how how scarce black for folks were uh, on this thing, and you mentioned Oscar Michelle and his all his all all black crew, and it kind of gets us back to a thing. This is going to be for another doc, another show, but the importance of almost not segregation per se, but when black folks were doing their own thing and using black folks to do that thing. You know, Oscar Michelle you mentioned. Oscar Michelle, you look at his cast and his crew, that's you know, one of the finest examples of not just filmmaking but of black business. You know, of, of a, he was a black studio head, writer, producer, director. He created, you know, his, his race movies for his race, and he produced them. And, and, it, and it's a fine example of understanding that I'm okay with this particular audience liking my content. Right, right, yeah. Um, last but not, well, last but not least, we, we had to interact, you know, the, the, what was the, uh, I, I said that uh, of that group that you dealt with, the 1936 group, right now everybody's talking about athletes speaking out, speaking up, and that kind of stuff, and firebrand. And I was saying that, and that, you know, Jesse Owens was never known as like a, a firebrand necessarily, where Ralph Metcalf was, which got us to a discussion of who speaks out, who doesn't. And um, who in that group was sort of the firebrand? And then it kind of leads us, we had this debate about today, you know, Carmelo Anthony versus Russell Wilson and who speaks out, who doesn't, but who uh, in that group was more or less, as you found your stories, was more sort of the firebrand of that group? You know, Ralph Metcalf was slightly older than some of the other athletes, and he was more experienced because he had been around the world at that point, and he had been in the 1932 Olympics as well. So he, he, you know, he, he would become a congressman, but he was already this charismatic young man who understood politics, and he understood organizing, and he understood mm. how to motivate other people, particularly the young African-American men, and he understood his role to help guide them and make them feel comfortable in what was, you know, really a situation of probably a tremendous amount of anxiety getting on that boat um, in New York and sailing to what would be the unknown in Berlin. And um, I think Tidy Pickett was also mm. a firebrand. She was young, and um, but she would speak up, and mm. uh, she would also... Um, Louise was a lot less shy, but 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 Tidy, her her mother didn't even want her to go, but Tidy wanted to go, hmm. and and Tidy ended up going because that's where her head was and that's where her heart was. She wanted to compete, and 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 as a black woman in the 30s, getting on a boat, and hmm. we didn't really have great success with boats historically. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, as a black woman going on a boat unchaperoned. Hmm. In the right. 30s, what courage! And I think she and Louise exhibited a level of courage um, and a level of dignity 
that few athletes can hope to achieve. And, and I thought it was just so emotional when you um, got their, uh, their, um, their, their daughters. And then you told us that we didn't see the son, I think. But I think you were just telling how, for a lot of them, they saw to see their mother as a young, as a young woman, see her as like a 20-something-year-old and see the, the hurdle, hit the hurdle. And just how I could just feel just how overwhelming that must have been, if you imagine any of us seeing our parents as 23-year-olds, 24-year-olds. In Nazi uh, Germany. And doing something so important and historical. I I just wanted to ask, you know, I I mean, it was a tremendous documentary. I learned a lot. Thanks, Jamal. It's very important that everybody see this, really. And Bill always likes to talk about looking at game film uh, as an athlete, you know, the analogy with athletes looking at game film. Uh, learning from their mistakes, getting better. So, you know, taking that to the, a documentary like this, how how do you feel people should should look at this? And what what what? I don't want to say what should we take from it because everyone will take something different. But how do you see how 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 would you use this as as education or motivation or how how to not let history repeat itself? That's a great question because it's always important to understand how people process film, particularly documentary film. And what we want people to take away from it is to understand what happens when there is this bias. What happens when you can't allow yourself to construct the perfect team, whether it's an athletic team, a corporate team, a religious team, whatever group of folks that need to be together pick the best person regardless of race. That's what we want people to take away from that. We also want people to examine their own implicit bias and unpack it and figure out what can they do as people. A lot of times in audiences, we ask, when was the last time you actually had lunch or dinner or invited someone who didn't look like you to your house? I do it all the time. (laughs) 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 But that's the difference. we, We have no choice but to do that. People, other people have choices. Right. Exactly, and we and we want people to examine those types of actions and understand that you can take individual principled actions, and you would impact your community. If one person says, "You know what? I'm not going to pull a Louise Stokes mm. action. I'm going to let the very best person run. Mm. I'm not going to say because I'm uncomfortable." uncomfortable with someone's blackness or un- I'm uncomfortable with them being Jewish mm-hmm. that I'm right. going to bench them right. I'm going to let them do what they came to do and I'm not going to stand in their way because I'm insecure that's what we want people to, to take away and we and we want people to you know go to Amazon and pre-order the DVD it's on Amazon right now and screen it for your family mm-hmm. have these yeah. types of discussions that we're having right now about race and intolerance and bias and how we can make our country better that's what we want people to do so you think Russell Wilson is like a race man. I know that comes out the blast completely random. <laughs> okay, and <laughs> but, segue. <laughs> now we may, I don't know if fans, if, if fans, listeners, if you hear this, it's completely unintentional because as I say, I have no idea whether this is going to make the cut or not. But we had such a fascinating discussion. We no, went it'll, from it'll J- make the cut. No, we went, well, Jamal is the cut man. So That's right. Know. Jamal's on edit. He's on edit. <laughs> no, but we went from Jesse Owens and that group in 1936 all the way 80 years later. 80, is that 80? 80 years 80, forward. 80 years forward, forward to who's saying what in 2016. And we were saying, well, you know, Car- we had, you had Carmelo, uh, LeBron, CP3, and Dwayne Wade at the ESPYs right. in 2016 talking about police violence, whatever. 
And you were saying that, and we were talking, yeah, it's good. You were saying, well, you think that Russell Wilson uh, is uh, is a guy. But then you mentioned who's your guy that you always talk about from the film from uh, from Los Angeles who did the Dr. James Laval. And 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 I talk about Dr. James Laval because you may not think that he would be because he's, he grew up in L.A. He has a Ph.D. in chemistry. Um, that he wouldn't be a guy that understood race and and would make decisions based on race. Mm. He understood race probably better than anybody mm. on that team, but he wasn't the guy that picketed, you know, but he also was the guy that went down to Fisk University to teach. Mm. Right. So the way he, you know, used his power was different, but that doesn't make him any less of a race man, and I feel the same way about Russell Wilson. I, I, I think everyone has to approach their way to protect and empower their community differently. You don't necessarily have to stand as a collective unit as the ESPYs, but I like Russell Wilson because I like the way that he carries himself as a black man. I like the way he articulates his blackness, and the, I like the way that his family for decades has educated black children and that they chose to be civil rights leaders as presidents of HBCUs. I like that about him. I like the fact that he married a black woman from Atlanta. The, sec I'm from the Atlanta. second time around. The second time around. Well, Sierra, you know, he's enlightened. Sierra. He's enlightened. Um, but his approach to that relationship and how he treated the black woman is critically important because we have to look at actions and how you treat black women to understand how you become a good black man. I just wish he hadn't have thrown that damn interception. Well, <laughs> you know what, we're, Bill, we're not talking about that right now. <laughs> we're not talking no. about and, that. And he, has, he still has a ring. Yeah, that's what no, I'm saying. No, but you know what that would have done <laughs> relative you. to, no, wait a minute, that's so fast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I drove off the road because what that would have done had he completed had he completed that pass for the touchdown, now all of a sudden he's in the conversation. He's beyond Manning. He he's got two rings in three years. He he puts himself in a whole another different sphere because they were killing him. They weren't killing him, but they were just resisting putting him in that conversation. You complete that pass, you've got two Super Bowls in three years. Now all of a sudden, you know and one thing he said that, and I, I and listen, I really dig Russell Wilson, I dig his family and all that. The race man thing was an interesting observation. Yes. But, 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 and, and again, this does kind of go with, you know what, it does tie into 1936. What happens if Jesse Owens, instead of winning, lost? What happens, you know, with that group, instead of winning, had they lost? Same thing, what happens if he completes the pass and he doesn't? You know, I mean, I know we could debate this all along. Um, He's still playing, too. That's what can, I was about to say. Can, it can he, still he can, get, he can still get two more rings in three years. It's not it's not like the end of his career. Right. No. Well, we hope so. Not. Well, no, we hope not. We, we hope, hope not. not. Anyway, mm -hmm. listen. Um, I had another point, but I think that's that's, <laughs> that's you know no. I think the point is that you're right. From 1936 to 2016, there are different ways to to win. Right. There are different ways to be black. There are different right. ways, as long as long as we're moving the ball forward. You know, that's the point. Long we're not informants. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, right. that's why. That's why the Russell Wilson thing is was interesting that you brought that up, and it, it makes a lot of sense because, you know, he he hasn't really spoken out on on a particular issue that I know about, but that you don't you don't necessarily have to, you don't necessarily have to. You can you can show who you are in, in many different ways. In deportment. I like his deportment. As I said, that's too nuanced for a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when we talk about 
gestures, but how great would it be if Carmelo Anthony, I mean, it's one thing, it's nice to stand on the stage and, and give a little talk, but what about bringing those kids to see movies like this? Because that's putting your, but you have to, kids have to see roots. They've got to see power. So I think that if you encourage them to do that, well, how great would that be? Oh, you know, it would be incredible for these young people to actually see Carmelo Anthony at the movies for Olympic Pride American Prejudice, and then you take them back and you have that conversation and you unpeel the layers of this film and you help them understand their history so they can understand their future. That's the demonstration of what we need to do as people, as athletes, as teachers, as lawyers, as, as journalists. We have to help our kids understand their past, to understand their present and their future. And these 18 athletes are the greatest example of Americans, African Americans, Americans, humans, in everybody. So if we are actually demonstrating what we talk about, we'll be in the theaters educating our kids with this film and any other film that'll help them understand their role. That's right. Hear that Carmelo? Hear that LeBron? Hear that Dwayne? Hear that CP3? Take your kids, your foundation, to see this piece of game film because it's empowering and it's putting your, uh, it's, it's empowering, empowering. So do it. Please support this film. We appreciate you. And it's actually your legacy. These are the first superstar athletes of the world. And they laid down the pathway for all the athletes we know right now. Right. And once you see it, you, you won't be able to help but support it. So that take that step and go see it. Hey, listen, this is, we, could, we could do this for... Another, <laughs> oh, we can go for hours. And, and we should, by the way. I mean, not, maybe not, but we got to do this. I'm your new co-host. <laughs> Scoot over, Jamal. All right, I'm going to sit right in between you guys. And love it's it. now a trio. I hear you. Love it. Love it. Hey. You, needed to, you need the female perspective That's on true. this show. Very Absolutely. true. I mean, Absolutely. really. Can we do this from... Oh, really? Like, <laughs> just completely rocky? You know, we had Gail King on the show. Yeah, She took cool. over. Yeah, exactly. She took Thank over. you, Gail. Yeah, immediately. <laughs> Listen, my guest is, this has really been wonderful. <laughs> From, uh, you know, this is like a second shot doing it. They came uh, on time Thursday, and they came here on time, and I was like in fucking Queens somewhere, and they were they cool. And I said, well, listen. We're always on time, if not early. You no, know, I noticed that. You got to know who you're, you know. They right. were here, and we like riding around in Queens. I said, okay, listen, go get something to eat. And they went there and said, Bill, it's padlocked. <laughs> the place is locked. They said, who is this loser? Now we see why you... Anyway, listen, my guest has been the wonderful, the great Deborah Riley Draper, writer. Hey. The writer, director. Now see, Jamal, if we have the, the mixer here, right. we got the, like, the little turntable with the yeah. applause on it and stuff. But yeah. we're going to get the, can, the canned applause. You the like that? Yeah, the canned applause. Well, no. Mm -hmm. Uh, Deborah Riley Draper is a writer, director, producer of Olympic Pride, American Prejudice, and Versailles 73, America Runway Revolution. If you have not seen these, you gotta, you have to see them, particularly after hearing you talk about Versailles 73. You must see that. You really must see that. And, and if people live in New York and L.A., they can go to the movies right now. In New York City, they can go to Cinema Village. In uh, L.A., they can go to the Monica Film Center in Santa Monica and see this film. And then they can go to uh, Amazon and check it out on pre-order in Versailles. You know, available iTunes, Amazon, etc. Please support these films and we thank you for allowing us to be here to talk about our work. Um, it's so great to have this platform to share that there are stories out there. We get a lot of thank yous from parents and, and 
of all races saying thank you so much for telling us about this it's inspiring because people want good work right. they're, 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 and what I've noticed from your film and Teresa Moore is her name Teresa Moore is, yes. is, is the documentary and what I've noticed from each one is, is the, you, uh, young people there's such a, a thirst in our community to, to hear these stories and to see these stories because people really do want to know so again thank you very much and Michael, you've been Michael Draper is uh, Deborah I. Draper's husband. You've been very quiet. Just say something so people know that you know. Leave us with something. Well, the only thing I can say is that um, this has been Deb's vision for a while, and uh, her creativity is just something to be admired. Mm. To be admired, and uh, I just wanted to support her uh, along with Coffee Bluff to support her as much as we can, make sure that she uh, reach her dreams. And uh, I just enjoyed the ride. I enjoyed the journey. Mm. It's been fantastic. And just uh, learning as much as I did about the, uh, the athletes of Olympic Pride American Prejudice. It was a history uh, uh, class for me because mm. it was things that I did not know. Mm. And I'm glad she brought those things to light for me. And thank right. you for and tracking down all those people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank and, so, and so am I. Uh, I learned a lot, Olympic Pride American Prejudice. Everybody right. needs to check that out. Yeah. Um, American history, not just black history, as people like to say, but it's, it's beyond the truth. Yeah, it's human history. And human Lacey history. Barnes, sitting over there very quietly, but <laughs> thank you very much for putting everything together, making sure people are where they're supposed to be. Well, and thank you. Doing thank all you for this opportunity media. to come on your show. Yeah, absolutely. We're, very We're going to be hitting you up. Very honored to be here. Yes, yes. We're I, be hitting and you I, up. I want to leave one last note that not, not one of us has mentioned that we all have our own Olympics experience. <laughs> No, really? Yes, 1996, all three of us were involved in the running of the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta. Oh, okay. I worked on opening and closing ceremonies. Deborah. I worked on marketing, track, and field. Oh, okay. And I was in, uh, worked on the uh, soccer team, the soccer team. And I was there as a journalist covering the 1996 games. In fact, I'll be back in Georgia this uh, in October speaking, and I guess I'm supposed to know this, right? The school I'm going to be at, but I'm giving a lecture about uh, the 1996 games, significance. I'm still doing my homework about exactly what, but I will be there. Well, maybe we'll go to Pasquale's or something. Yes. Yeah, let's, let's go to Pasquale's. Let's, let's kind of reboot this and finish, you know, part four. We will. We'll bring, we, listen, with our equipment, we'll be there. And oh, we can go excellent. To wherever. No problem. We can, we can keep, this, keep this rolling. We'll, we'll keep it going. <laughs> thank you. Seriously, thank you for having us. We really appreciate it. Oh, uh, listen, thank the pleasure. You. Yeah, the pleasure of uh, Jamal, as always. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll see everybody else very soon on the other side. Uh, Bill wrote on sports. Thank you very much. God bless. And we will see you guys. And thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.